0: Hi, everybody. This is Blaine DeSantis. I welcome you to another episode of Books and Looks. That's right. Our weekly podcast where we come to you taking a look at books, sometimes what I'm looking at, but we also have interviews with some wonderful people, either authors or people in the book industry. So, you know, we got a full episode already today. Matter of fact, we got a great interview for you today. But before we get to that one, let me just say I have finished a book I think you're really going to enjoy. It's called N four down that's N with a dash and then the number four N four down by Mark Pising, P-I-E-S-I-N-G. And Mark to be on actually next week to talk about this book. Yeah, are we all familiar with the Goodrich blimp and the uh, the MetLife blimp, the Snoopy Blimp as they call it? Well way back when in the early part of the nineteen twenties and even before that, blimps were called airships. And they were a big part of exploration. As a matter of fact, polar exploration. And the N4 Down is a story about an Italian airship that left from Norway and went up to the North Pole. And on its way back, it crashed. It's the story of Umberto Nobile. That's right, an Italian gentleman who designed it, who was the uh, captain of the ship, and who had... Well, I'm not going to give the whole thing away. It's too much. It's a great book. That's all I want to tell you. Why? I could go on and on about this one. But this is a really fascinating look at the last, the era of what they call the heroic adventurer or the heroic explorer. You've heard of Shackleton. You've heard of Rolda Munson and all the other ones. Well, this is Umberto Nobile, a guy I never heard of. Yeah. Anyway, it's a wonderful book. It's coming out now. And next week, Mark's going to be with us to talk about that book. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. But if you get a chance, take a look at the book. You're really going to like it. As a matter of fact, I gave it a five-star rating. That's right. What does that mean? That means I would read it again. Mm -hmm. You got a five-star? I want to read that book one more time. Anyway, before we actually get into today's interview, I want to say that we are very honored to have with us the executive director of of the Willa Cather Foundation. Now, I always called it Willa Cather, and I found out during this podcast you say her name like Gather, Cather. So, the Willa Cather Foundation is out in Nebraska. The, I loved Willa Cather, okay? I gotta be honest with you, she's one of my favorite writers from the 1920s. She won a Pulitzer Prize, she won numerous awards, huge, huge popularity. And unfortunately, many of us don't know her anymore. So, I've been very fortunate to have Ashley Olson on, who's going to be interviewing with me about the Willa Cather Foundation. So without fur- any further ado, let's go right into that interview. Welcome, Ashley. Glad to have you aboard.
1: Well, thanks, Blaine. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, uh, you know, we try to hit all aspects of the uh, book industry, and we have had authors, we've had publicists. Last week we had a Pulitzer-winning uh, in, uh investigative journalist. And we try to bring in all sorts of people. And Willa Cather is a name that I've been long familiar with and the foundation also. And I thought it'd be a good time to talk about this and and ask you a couple questions about you. Like, for instance, where are you from? What was your background? And how did you end up working at the Willa Cather Foundation?
1: Well, sure. Great. I was born and raised in Nebraska, where I still reside. And uh, I've always gravitated toward historic sites when I'm traveling, and I'm a bit of a history buff. So working here at the at the Cather Center really aligns with my personal interests and passions. Uh, educational background: uh, I have an undergraduate degree in in business administration, and more recently, a graduate degree in public administration. Uh, both of which have Served me well in this role. Um, I actually found myself back in Red Cloud after college. You, you know, was cautiously uh, looking for an opportunity to come home to uh, be closer to family and and rejoin my, or, or join, I should say, my uh, husband here in the region. And so was delighted when there was an opportunity that came open here at the Cather Center. Uh, where I've served in various roles over the years, first uh, mainly in finance and later uh, finance and development. And I've served as the executive director most recently, as you noted.
0: Well, now, I also read somewhere that you you have some uh, degrees that help you with uh, foundation building or something to that effect. What's, What's that all about?
1: Yes. Well, when I started working for the foundation, you know, we've always, as an organization, had very lofty strategic goals. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, when I came on the team, we uh, had more dreams than we had money. I'll put it that way. And so I pursued a certificate in fundraising management and hold a certified fundraising executive cr- credential. Uh, those are our opportunities I pursued really to help the organization increase charitable gifts, uh, grants and bequests to further some of our strategic goals and some of the capital projects that were underway at the time I started and and new capital projects and initiatives that have been prioritized since I've been here. So it's been a lot of fun. It's it's really delightful to visit with people about their passions and their uh philanthropic goals and and their love and appreciation for Cather. So uh I enjoy having those conversations and finding ways that passionate readers and fans of Cather can further uh advance her legacy here in Nebraska and beyond. Oh,
0: with those college courses or did you a business course? Where do you get a degree such as that in fundraising?
1: Well, let's see. I took uh, I took a series of classes through the University of Nebraska at Omaha for a uh, certificate in fundraising management, and then uh, for the Certified Fundraising Executive credential, you. Uh, it's been a while since I worked on that one. I have to refresh my memory. You have to take a certain number of fundraising related coursework before you qualify to take an exam. Uh, so I, I. You know, through the through the first uh, certificate, had the required coursework covered, and then was able to take the fundraising executive exam and luckily passed. Uh, so you know, a few more letters behind my name and uh, a lot of good knowledge that I've been able to put to use here.
0: Great. Well, that's tremendous. Now, one thing I'm noticing, I want to get into Will in a minute, but I'm noticing. I'm not pronouncing her last name as you pronounced her last time. I'm taking a hard T-H, Cather, and you're taking more of a, a a softer T-H. Is that how his name is supposed to be pronounced?
1: Well, uh, I hadn't noticed that we were pronouncing it differently. Your ears are better than mine. Uh, so cather. Uh, cather, and yeah. He always yeah. emphasized that it, be, it it was Cather, and it would be pronounced in a similar way to rather.
0: Okay. Because I've been saying Cather like a harder th, Cather, and you're saying rather, oh, uh, Cather. Okay, good. Well, now I, now I know how to pronounce her name. I, <laughs>
1: well, we're on the same page.
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting. Fascinating. Well, now, a lot of my listeners and a lot of even a lot of readers and good readers are not familiar with Willa. And uh, I was wondering if you'd give us a little bit of a, a history of Willa. And, uh, and then also get into some of her uh, major books that she's written.
1: Ooh, how much time do we have today? Uh, well, we
0: got a few minutes. <laughs>
1: good, good, good. Well, let's start at the beginning. Heather was born in Virginia in 1873. And uh, when she was nine years old, her family moved to Webster County and later to the town of Red Cloud. This is in Nebraska, of course, uh, where she came of age. I would describe Cather as a bit of a precocious child. She uh, really enjoyed getting to know the European immigrants who'd settled in the region. I think she liked to uh, irritate her mother by resisting uh, Victorian norms of her time. And she especially enjoyed honing her interest in medicine by shadowing a local physician here in Red Cloud. During her college year, she served as managing editor of a student literary journal and worked as a reporter and a drama critic for the Nebraska State Journal. And after graduating, she eventually landed a job in Pittsburgh as editor of the Home Plate. Later during her time in Pittsburgh, she she taught high school and she also worked for the Pittsburgh Leader. Uh, and about a decade after she first moved to Pittsburgh she found herself in New York uh, working for McClure's magazine where she later became uh, managing editor her first novel Alexander's Bridge was published in 1912 and that was followed soon thereafter by O Pioneers the Song of the Lark and My Antonia she won a Pulitzer Prize in 1923 for her novel One of Ours, which is uh, I would describe it as the story of a, a story of a young man looking for, for meaning in life and finding purpose on the battlefields in France during World War I. Uh, the main character in that book, Claude Wheeler, was modeled after Cather's cousin, GP. And The year of that Pulitzer, 1923, also marked a shift in Cather's career. The next four books she published were set outside of Nebraska, including uh, two books which won awards. Death Comes for the Archbishop earned her the William Dean Howells Medal. And that's a historical novel based on the lives of two uh, missionaries organizing a Catholic diocese in New Mexico and then Shadows on the Rock, which was published in 1931, uh, Earn Cather, the Pre-Femina America. Uh, and that book depicts French culture in 17th century Canada. And then her last novel, Saphira and the Slave Girl, was set in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and it's based on stories of her own family and the region where she spent those early years of her life. And then ultimately, Kathar she passed away in 1947, then was laid to rest in Jaffrey, New Hampshire.
0: Wow, she's been all over, hasn't she? Especially back in that time, yeah. The thing about Katherine is she went boom, boom, boom there in the early 20s with uh, her her what what people now refer to as her prairie trilogy, uh, one after another, it seemed like. And I just get the feeling that 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 the plains was in her blood. And her soul. I mean, I really felt that that was uh, so important to all of her books.
1: Yeah, I I, I recall. I think in one piece of correspondence, Cather talked about um, her heart never crossed the Missouri River. Like she, you know, her heart was always here in Nebraska. And uh, I think I think she was like a lot of people who move on to make their way in the world, but maintain strong ties to the place they identify as home. Of course, uh, Virginia was her birthplace, but for all practical purposes, uh, Red Cloud and Nebraska were home. Uh, she was coming of age here during some very impressionable years, and and really soaked up all that was happening around her—the the close of the frontier and the development of the town. Uh, and while she never referred to Red Cloud by name in her writing, it it very clearly shows up in in her poetry, in her short stories, and in about half of her novels. Actually, um, yeah, you you mentioning that brings to to mind another remark she made in a, I think it was a World Herald interview uh, in the 20s when she was asked about her impulse to write. She talked about her deepest feelings being rooted in this country um, and that, you know, one's strongest emotions and and vivid mental pictures are acquired, I think she said, before the age of 15. And she talked about, you know, before she wrote O Pioneers, having searched for books that told the story about the beauty of the country she loved and and not finding them. And so she she wrote O Pioneers.
0: Well, it is a wonderful book. I love that book and, uh, and so many others uh, of hers. And yeah, you know, uh, when I as I was preparing for this, it was I was thinking about you know other writers uh, who focused on uh, I don't want to say the, the same area, but similar sort of topics. So you had Laurel Engel, Ingalls Wilder, who wrote about up life up in the you know, her little house series and all those books. And then I don't know if you're familiar with Louise Erdrich, uh, who's written uh, a bunch of uh, very good books, which she at her fictional town set up in. Uh, north dakota and all again we talk about a lot of immigrants yes she has the native americans but she also has a lot of the scandinavian immigrants coming in there and i just felt parallels between them and what what uh, willa uh, had written years before
1: yeah yeah i think um cather was on the cusp of something really special when she started using the planes as a setting for her work She really found her niche as a writer when she took the advice of fellow author Sarah Orne Jewett, who encouraged Cather to write about the things she knew and things she'd experienced firsthand. And prior to that, her style was really emulating writers she admired, like Edith Wharton and Henry James and Mark Twain. And at that time, no one else was really writing about Nebraska or the, or the, or about the Great Plains more generally. And Heather herself had acknowledged uh, once that a critic in New York had said something to the effect of, um, you know, not caring a, a darn about what happened in Nebraska, regardless of who was writing about it.
0: I would say, on the whole, though, when she brings out that uh, Prairie trilogy, she got very warm reviews from the critics. Critics and fellow writers seemed to really uh, appreciate and compliment her on, on those works.
1: Yeah, well, *My Antonia* especially had had really rave reviews. Um, I think it was called the like the I'm going to get this wrong like the greatest novel of of our generation or uh, perfectly masterful or something of that nature. Yeah, so the prairie tr- the prairie trilogy often gets grouped together. Those three books: *O oh Pioneers*, *The Song of the Lark*, and *My Antonia*. The Cather wrote in quick succession. They get grouped together a lot. And uh, it's not a term we we use often here at the foundation, but it seems to be used a lot in popular culture to sort of group her writing together and tie her to the Great Plains. And of course, as she continued writing um, novels like One of Ours and and later A Lost Lady and Lucy Yehart were also um, set partially in in Nebraska and and on the Great Plains. So
0: I, I notice, and that there's we start to get a gap. I mean, she wrote so many great books boom 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 right after one after another as you said and then we start seeing a little bit of a a, a gap between books was there reasons for that or just you think she was trying to find a uh, uh, source material during those time periods
1: well I, me- I mentioned the shift in her career where she she very like sort of i think it was strategic moved away from writing about the planes for a time and then came back to it but she also had a lot happening in in her personal life and the in the late 1920s and early 1930s her her father had passed away in 1928 and then and then her mother in 1931 after having suffered a stroke a few years earlier keather and and Edith lewis had to vacate their home on bank street in new york and uh i think it was 1927 and moved into a hotel until uh, about 1932 when they took a new apartment on park avenue they also completed construction of a cottage on Grand Manan Island in, I think it was 1928, and and then spent summers there throughout the 1930s. Um, she also lost her brother, Douglas, and one of her closest friends, Isabel McClung, within a span of, of just a few months of one another in 1938. Um, but she did continue to write. Uh, Lucy Gayhart was published in uh, 1934 and a collection of essays titled Not Under 40 was written partly in response to some of her critics and published in 1936. And she spent the, the latter half of the 1930s really working on her final novel, Saphira and the Slave Girl. So, you know, by by that time she was into her 60s and slowing down a bit.
0: I understand that. And it's interesting because you said you, it, she wrote something in response to critics because we saw some of that that early good criticism turn into some negative criticisms as she went on in her career. Um, and again, it reminded me of another one of my favorite writers who had the same thing happen to him. And that's John Dos Passos at the beginning. Oh, they loved him. And if he took a certain point of view, now we don't like him, you know, and Hemingway didn't like this or someone didn't like that. And, you know, I don't understand why authors listen to other authors because <laughs> most times I don't care what they have to say. Just write a good good book. That's all I care about.
1: Right. Well, I feel like if you write long enough, you're bound to to not please a critic somewhere down mm-hmm. the line. But yeah, you're right. And around the 1930s, there were, um, there were some tough critiques over work and um, I think certain critics would have liked her to focus more on social and political issues that were, that were of concern at that time. And, and, you know, she was interested in, in the past really, and, and kind of took, took some heat for that.
0: Yeah, but, but the people kept buying her books. That's the thing. They were very well, popular, the books. And, uh, uh and so obviously, uh, no matter what the uh, fellow authors or critics had to say, people were buying her works, you know, they they turned on Steinbeck by the end also also uh, oh, yeah. so if you're gonna you're gonna do that she's in good company if you if she's like and lump her in with John Dos Passos, uh, Willa and and John Steinbeck you're doing a ok in my book so uh, yeah wonderful wonderful say well let's talk a little bit about the the foundation if we can when was it started why was it started uh, can you give us a little bit of background.
1: Yeah, I can. Well, we were founded in 1955 uh, by Mildred Bennett and a board of local and regional volunteers. Uh, Mildred Bennett was a school teacher in nearby Innavale, and she had students in our classes whose uh, parents or, or their grandparents had known Cather and, and known the Cather family. So she really uh, as a curious person grew interested in learning more about Cather's life and and about her connection to Red Cloud and she was later encouraged to write a biography of Cather uh, following her death in 1947 so that book The World of Willa Cather came out in 1951 and uh, a few short years later the foundation was founded uh, in addition to you know, becoming really knowledgeable about Cather's life and interviewing and talking with people that had known her, uh, Mildred knew that there were all these historic places in Red Cloud that um, had a connection to Cather's life and her writing, her childhood home, for example, as, as one of the biggest ones. And so uh, it, was, it was decided that something needed to be done to really honor and memorialize Cather and her hometown. And Mildred managed to assemble just the right group of people to do that, and to get that work started. And they um, they were incredibly successful in a couple of short decades in acquiring a number of sites associated with Cather's life and writing, uh, acquiring a, a large uh, collection of artifacts and archival materials that had belonged to Cather or her family, and and just did a lot of work that we still lean on heavily today to advance Cather's legacy.
0: Wow. So they started, they started small back in 1955, and now they're growing. And it's not just, well, let me, first of all, ask this, are, are there a lot of authors who have foundations like this? I don't know of any, but do you, are there a lot out there?
1: Yeah, I, we, we have seen all different, all, di- all different sorts of setups. There are certainly a number of author sites across the country, and some of them are affiliated with foundations, others are affiliated with uh, universities, uh, some operate as for-profits. But yeah, uh, we're not unique in, in the way that this organization is set up.
0: And what amazes me is is as you've gone on, not you personally, but the foundation, now you're starting to acquire some properties. And you said properties that were important or Willa Cather had uh, relations with. Can you tell us a little bit about what what the, the foundation now owns?
1: Yes. Well, we in total own 12 sites that make up the largest collection of nationally designated historic sites dedicated to an American author. And uh, the most noteworthy of all of them is Willa Cather's Childhood Home, which is a National Historic Landmark, uh, the place that she and her family moved when they left uh, greater Webster County and the farm in, in northwestern Webster County and moved to town, a house that they rented for uh, for about 20 years. So that is is really... Uh, the crown jewel of all the things to see and do in red cloud in a lot of ways. If you really want to get an intimate look at uh, Cather's life and, and the lived experience uh, of her and her family.
0: Are those your offices in the, uh, in the house?
1: No, uh, actually we have, uh, our headquarters are in a building that was historically known as the moon block now known as the National Willa Cather Center, which is uh, adjoined to the Red Cloud Opera House. So uh, the Opera House was restored in 2003, and the Moonblock Building uh, restored and reopened in 2017. So our offices are here, along with uh, an art gallery and performing arts center, an exhibit space, a bookstore, and an archive and classroom and study center. So we occupy a large portion of uh, of the downtown area in Red Cloud, or at least one block of it.
0: Now, I also heard, and I don't know if this is true. I heard you own a prairie. Is that possible?
1: It is possible. We were we were gifted the Willa Cather Memorial Prairie by the Nature Conservancy several years ago. Um, it was initially acquired to, to be preserved by the Nature Conservancy, which they uh, they were successful at doing for many years until uh, they made the decision to turn it over for local ownership and local, local control. So we got to work right away with a conservation and restoration project working to return the land to its pre pre 1900 conditions by removing invasive uh, tree species and restoring flowing water uh, through the natural Springs also worked to reintroduce um, or well to encourage uh, native plant species to thrive on the prairie by using um, a grazing and prescribed burning approach to our land conservation efforts, which uh, promotes a diversity of species uh, on the prairie. So there are over 250 uh, plant species that can be found there. It's really an incredible place to spend some time walking and and getting in, in touch with nature.
0: Wow. Well, that's, and it's, so it's, its purpose is going to be to remain as a prairie, to remain as that sort of a wild wilderness or however you want to say it, natural form as it was before 1900.
1: Yeah. This, this track of land is, it's unique in, in that it's never been plowed. And so because Nebraska is such a large agricultural producer as a state, that's, that's not, um, it's not these types of pieces of land that it's not that they don't exist; they just exist in in much smaller quantities than they did historically, and so that is a unique aspect of of this site. You can walk out and see the land as it would have appeared when when Catherine and her family first came to webster county in in uh the late eighteen hundreds
0: wow, well. You have that. You also have the Red Cloud Theater. I think is part of the foundation. Now, is that a is that a well used theater?
1: It certainly is. So, I yes, the Red Cloud Opera House was restored in two thousand three, and it is a performing arts center that hosts monthly programs, uh, concerts, theater, film screenings, uh, lectures. We also make it available for uh, rent by local groups or or regional groups that wish to use the space for personal or, or or business reasons. So, you know, we've had things like weddings and um, showers and community meetings and strategic uh, planning sessions for for groups. So it really. Gets used in a variety of ways. It's a wonderful community asset, and also has a has a connection to Cather's past. Of course, uh, she as a as a child in Red Cloud attended productions at the Red Cloud Opera House. She she acted in one production of Beauty and the Beast, playing the role of the merchant, and. She also gave her graduation address from the stage of the Opera House in 1890. So this is also a place that, you know, when you walk into the space, you're walking into a place that Cather herself spent time in, and was introduced into to a wider world of arts and culture through the traveling productions that made their way to Red Cloud uh, by train in her day.
0: Wow. Oh, that's, that's great. You can have, you have that all preserved and everything else. Now, that's one of the things that preserve, you're trying to preserve it in the original form. If I come out there, and I've been trying to get out there, but I keep, I keep falling and hurting my knees. And uh, is everything ADA compliant or is there something uh, that we who has some disabilities, we can park places or get in to see things?
1: Uh, it is ADA compliant. So the Opera House and the National Willow Cather Center are ADA accessible. And we really have put a lot of emphasis on making other, his, you know, with historic sites, you, you likely know this, having traveled to other places, it's it's difficult to make them fully accessible. But we have, as we've been restoring properties in recent years, doing all we can to um, make them ex- as accessible as as. They can be while um, trying to maintain the historic integrity of the property. So, uh, if you were to take a guided town tour, uh, places like the Red Cloud Burlington Depot, uh, the Pavelka Farmstead in Greater Webster County, which was a setting in the final scenes of Maya Tania, and eventually the Willa Cather Childhood Hall, which is under renovation now, will, will also be accessible. I see. Wow,
0: that's great. I say I'm going to get there one of these days. I've been, uh, ever since we were reading that as a uh, book club a long time ago, I said, you know, I really want to get out there and see the place. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think the interstate's any anywhere near you, Are are you?
1: We are about an hour south of Interstate 80. So you have to get off the beaten path a little bit to make your way here.
0: That's what Willa Cather was, wasn't she? Off the beaten path there. That's where she grew up, and she could write about that. Hey, by the way, I meant to ask you, do you have a favorite Willa Cather book?
1: Oh, I get asked that question a lot, and my answer often changes. But I will say, though, *My Antonia* was my first introduction to Cather as a high school student, and I, I really grow to appreciate it more and more each time I reread the book. Just beautiful, beautiful descriptions of this place that, um, like Cather, I also really connect with and love. Um, and it's just this really wonderful story about perseverance and friendship and love and loss. And
0: that was very uh, prevalent back then. You know, life and times were different, and there were sudden losses. And I, and you go back and you read some of the things that the. Uh, the the settlers, uh, immigrants, however you want to call them, had to had to uh, you know go through, and uh, you know not every child is going to come out successfully. Not every child is going to live past the age of five, and there was a lot of tragedy with, with weather and everything else. So it, it's a part of her life.
1: Yeah, it wasn't an easy life for for sure.
0: You you say you came in and and you've grown a little bit. How how many people work for the foundation?
1: We have, let's see, we have eighteen staff currently, uh, twelve of whom are full time and, and six part time. Yeah, we have we have a, a larger team, of course, than than what we had when I joined the staff fifteen years ago, um, and and hope to continue to to grow in that way as well as we look to deliver. Additional educational resources for classrooms and readers and libraries, um, and continue to host more more arts programs and and curate more exhibits and and eventually host events outside of Nebraska and outside of Red Club. So
0: you have an ambitious schedule. Thank goodness. Yeah. Now, visitor, How many people come to visit you every year? Why right? you have a few people come.
1: Yeah, we, uh, I feel like we're not really back to our pre-pandemic levels yet. Everything changed, uh, and that's the reality, but typically around eight to 10,000 visitors a year, um, which is about 10 times the size of Red Cloud, uh, and those visitors usually come from uh, somewhere around 40 states and, and five countries outside the U.S.
0: Well, that's great that they're still drawing. Again, I, I, being down here in South Carolina, we're not getting a lot of books about her or being written by her or being read by our students. And how do we get to educate everybody about her? Do is, is you find that a difficult thing to do?
1: Well, it's definitely a fun uh, challenge uh, for sure. In some ways, when you think about like, why Cather isn't more widely read at, in schools or, or just generally by the general public, I think in some ways she didn't do herself a lot of favors. She, she de- declined many requests for her work to be published in school anthologies in the 1930s and 40s. And with the exception of The Lost Lady, she declined requests to adapt some of her works for film.
0: Oh, I see.
1: She put a provision in her will, for example, that didn't allow for adaptation, it sort of impacted her, her ability to be elevated in popular culture. But even in spite of all of those things, her work has been translated into something like just over forty languages, and many of her works have never gone out of print. In terms of raising her profile, I. I still think there are a lot of people out there who mistakenly think of Cather as solely a Nebraska writer and, and maybe avoid her writing because of that. And then might pick up a book later and find they really enjoy it or discover one of the books that um, wasn't set in the Midwest. I, I, you know, I think there's, there's a misconception that Cather's this stodgy, boring Midwestern writer. And, and that definitely is a misconception themes and, and her work are still relevant to our lives today. And she's also someone who lived just an incredibly fascinating life, had a lot of interesting and accomplished friends, um, enjoyed her wine and scotch and cigarettes. Um there you go. Which That's maybe a whole nother podcast. But.
0: <laughs> well, hey, listen, one of the ways, and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but one of the things that you do is you have both uh, local seminars, if I'm not reading, and and uh, international uh, Willa Cather seminars. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yes, that is correct. We have a spring conference annually. This year will be our 68th annual event, and that's a it's a public arts and humanities event that brings together readers and scholars over two to three days to celebrate and study Cather by sharing research, exploring historic sites engaging with visual art, music, or theater uh, that was inspired by her writing and and the themes and settings within it. And then every other year, we also collaborate with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to host an international seminar, uh, which is uh, an academic conference. And it's typically held, although it has been held in Nebraska several times, we typically try to organize that event outside Nebraska. So this summer it will take place in New York where Cather lived for, uh, nearly 40 years. Um, that's to, in partnership with the new school. And, uh, those events are an opportunity for, uh, students and researchers to present their, um, original research and literary criticism, um, uh, so they've really done uh, a lot to keep Cather studied.
0: Well, that's important because not every author gets that degree of uh, analysis and gets that degree of uh, people who want to study them, study their writing. And here, you know, her, her last works were basically in the 1930s. Here we're talking 90 years later and people are still studying. They're still you know, learning about her, they're teaching about her. That's really a wonderful tribute to to both Willa and to you for what you guys are doing to promote uh, her works. Kudos!
1: Well, well, thank you, thank you. We haven't done it alone. The like Cather community is has been really wonderful over the years, and there's, as you said, a committed a committed group of um, researchers and scholars all all over the world who. Love and appreciate Cather or or maybe don't. And we welcome we welcome those thoughts and opinions as well. So
0: however misguided they may be, right? (laughs) Anyway, well listen with that. Ashley, I want to say thank you a lot for coming on. I don't want to keep you any longer. We got a nice interview for people. I hope friends, if you're listening to this, this is a wonderful writer. And you know, Willow wrote some beautiful books. The foundation is doing great work and we really appreciate Ashley Olson taking her time to be with us here today to educate us about Willa Cather and the foundation out there in Red Cloud, Nebraska. Thanks, Ashley.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate it.
0: All right. Very good. We'll be back in just a sec, few seconds, friends. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And, and if you get a chance Pick up a copy of her book, I and mean, you can get some of them on, you can get some of them on Kindle for only, what, zero cents. You can find some of her things very cheaply on Kindle. So, you know, if you get a chance, try O Pioneers or My or my Antonia. Uh, they're wonderful books. They're never lengthy things. They're on 200, 220 pages. I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. She's a wonderful writer. She talks about those things, the planes growing up there, what it means to her, and I'll tell you what, one day when I when my knees are, are, are feeling better, I'm going to make it out to Red Cloud, Nebraska. So anyway, friends, that's it for another episode of Books and Looks. Uh, we'll be coming at you next time where we're going to be talking with Mark Pising. as I said. I think I'm going to really enjoy that one also. So on behalf of ViewsonBooks.com, on behalf of the Greenville Podcast Company, and on behalf of Books and Looks, this is Blaine DeSantis saying, May all your leaves be pages in the book.